0: editing my vlog of christine's launch so that's gonna be out in the world eventually maybe one day (laughs) cool i'm super behind on vlogging and stuff like that i feel horrible how dare you i know i'm so busy though
1: Mm, poor baby she's so busy
0: (laughs) i have so many things i'm doing in my life
1: (laughs) So we both had bi- busy weeks. Speaking of busy. We, oh my goodness. Um, yes. Ta-da. Both had e-
0: exciting weeks. Very exciting. I am so proud of you and your scholastic sales conference. I'm proud oh of my you gosh. too.
1: I, I think it's really <laughs> cool how we both got to do like sales conference things. Like yeah. literally one day after the other. It was, it was pretty nice. Like it, on its own it's cool but like being able to sort of I don't want to say share the experience because it's not like we were there together but yeah still, it was just very surreal that like I had mine on Tuesday and then yours was Wednesday um yeah and it was just really cool to see like one of your best writing friends like going through something similar as you that's like a good thing <laughs> no for sure and yeah no it was
0: very strange because it was so it was literally the one day
1: after the, after other. the other yeah but yeah. it was cool though because like we've been through so many like ups and downs together so to see like our books being celebrated us just thriving together yeah. I think it makes it I think for me it makes it sweeter that like we're both doing well and like mm-hmm. c- celebrating things and it's just nice
0: yeah no yeah I think and also we say this all the time uh when we're talking to other people but I think it's really important for us to actually put it into practice when it happens to us is that like we need to celebrate like all the good moments yeah and and pay attention to those and savor those as much as we dwell on all of the negative things that we tend to dwell on.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because we, we do dwell on negative things a lot. And like, I think part of it is social media makes it like more complicated, I think, because I think we're, we're constantly trying not to like trying to like sort of walk this line between like, being appreciative and like talking about the good things about our books without seeming like assholes. And I think it's yeah. really complicated because like, on the one hand, like and we've, we've talked about this kind of thing before, like on the one hand, you know, I feel that like women and like people of color in general, and especially like women of color and like add all sorts of, you know, different things on top of that, like being queer. And yeah. we're, we're sort of told like, don't, like celebrate things like a because you don't want to look cocky. B because it's bad luck. Like I think mm-hmm, some mm-hmm. of it is like superstitions that like in our culture like oh you don't want to have like the evil eye like people um you know targeting you because of jealousy yeah or whatever and um I. I think it's it's really hard because like my personal like from a person who is on social media a lot and has gotten many opportunities from social media if if I'm giving somebody like coaching advice I would say you celebrate everything that happens you make a big deal out of everything that happens because our books are products as authors we're part of that brand and while I do think it's important to be sort of transparent where you feel comfortable being transparent in terms of uh negative things too or like the struggles um obviously yeah. with this podcast um I also think that you should be able to celebrate things and that's because like that's like marketing 101 like the hype comes before the 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 marketing hype comes before the the organic hype a lot of times you know what i mean people like something because someone said like hey you might like this thing you know yeah and um i think we've gotten like stuck in sort of this trap of like oh you have to be humble and like not like celebrate yourself meanwhile there's authors out there who don't give a shit and who are you know celebrating themselves all the time and people are eating it up and buying their books and we're like having this like struggle because we don't want to come off as jerks. And I think it's just such a, I don't know, it's such a thing.
0: No, I completely agree. And honestly, uh, someone, someone once gave me writing advice that I think is applicable here. They were just telling me not to have filler scenes or anything like that, because they're like, if you don't like your own parts of your own story, how can you expect other people to like your story? Exactly. Like you, you are your first fan, and if you can't fan over your own work, then, like, you can't expect anyone else to, like, to read it and like it either. Absolutely. It's super true. And I think, you know what, I think it's not just us being able to be excited about our own stories and promote our own stories and um, put ourselves out there. I think that it is, um, it would be very smart for anyone who is about to go and be an author or be a writer to really work on how you react to when you see other people doing promotion for their own work, mm-hmm. because I think that we do end up having jerk reactions to people who are, like, shouting about their books and stuff like that. And, of course, I'm not talking about this the Twitter accounts that literally their whole feed is by-links. That's yeah. a different story. Yeah people who are genuinely and organically excited about their books on their social media, um, they have a right to do that and they, and they are allowed to do that. And you being, um, you know, having like a negative reaction to that is, uh, is, is kind of on you. You know what I'm saying? 100%. Like, 100%. And, and I'm talking to myself here too. Okay. Like yeah. I, I'm, I'm not just saying this to other people and pretending like I'm perfect. A hundred percent. I admit that I am, you know, I have uh, done this before. I've done this with people that I'm friends with, where I see their Twitter account and I'm like, damn, they only talk about their books and their writing. I'm tired of it. Mm. And, and there was a moment in my, in my, you know, in the past like year or two where I started having to think about my own promo and I had to come to terms with my jerk reactions to how other people were doing their promotion. and. And, you know, for me, at least I do know that part of it was probably like I let a version of jealousy get in the way of, of myself because I was stressed and I was seeing that these people were steps ahead of me. And I was like, oh, I hate that I have to be doing what I'm doing now. I just want to be there and look, they get to do it and they're doing it all the time. And it's so annoying, like stop rubbing it in my face, kind of a attitude. Yeah. Um, and. Since I've been able to kind of at least admit that that was why I felt that way, um, I've been able to deal with it a lot better. And it's been so much better for my mental health. Mm. It's been so much better for my ability to exist online. Um, And it's just an important thing for us to acknowledge because, you know, other people are not going to stop promoting their work.
1: Yeah, they're not. And, like, at the end of the day, you can mute somebody. Yeah. Like just mute them if you don't like how they're tweeting or their tweets annoy you. Although, I do think that like the self-examination that you went through, I think that's very important. I think, I think that is probably the healthier way to to go about it, you know what I mean? Yeah, in in a way you're tweet you're tweeting or you're promoting your book or or whatever for other authors in the community, but mostly you're doing it to, like, drum up, like, reader support and, like, blogger support and, like, get people behind you, you know? Um, So I I think that's, it's a hard thing because a lot of it is, like, I think dipped in jealousy or bitterness about one's own career and, like, where you are and versus where everybody else is, but... Yeah. Again, it's also someone celebrating all the good things we don't necessarily see the bad things all the time in those situations either yeah. and you know I always give the example of like that one wedding I went to where I was like when, in, when will I be married yeah <laughs> when and then the then the couple got divorced like not even a year later it's like don't don't covet what somebody else wants has in a bad way you know yeah you can you can say it in sort of like a way to like direct your goals like I mm-hmm. think that if you um say like oh this person's at this step and I really want to be there in my career I think that's healthy I think yeah. where it becomes unhealthy is where like and how dare they talk about it so much and make me feel uncomfortable <laughs>
0: Right? <laughs> you know? No, wait wasn't it Holly Black who told you um to, that that to use jealousy in a positive way. Yeah, she
1: said jealousy can be good because it can show you what you what you want. Yeah. and I love that. And I've I've remind me to make a quote of that for the Instagram, um, which yeah. we have an Instagram, guys. Uh oh, if yeah, you want to follow us, uh, I'll tell you the handle in a second because I don't know it off the top of my head. Because <laughs> I'm sure it's like write or Die Pod or something. That's what we yeah. always use, right? Yeah. Um, it's actually write or Die Podcast
0: oh we got the full name this time look Look at at
1: us (laughs) so go follow us on there um we have a whopping 85 followers so far I'm like shocked I actually Um, am because I spent
0: I think a good three years with like 12 followers on Instagram yeah you
1: know that's that's one really annoying thing about the ride or die social media anywhere anywhere I feel like how many followers do we have? I don't know. We have more, uh, so many more followers. Like, like quickly. Like, our our Twitter already has a thousand, one thousand one hundred sixty seven followers. Like, how sad like about this? I <laughs> love how it took me forever to get there. And ride or die is like whatever. Just very casually. Anyway. Clarabelle, use your jealousy positively. <laughs> I'm <laughs> mad at something that is mine. <laughs> you know, you're jealous of yourself, pretty much. Right? I'm now. I'm jealous of myself, <laughs> so, which, which is a healthy, actually, uh, person to compete with yourself. I think. Yeah, mm. I compete with my past
0: self all the time. It's great because I know that when I'm um, when I'm winning, like or like when I'm. When I'm losing it's because I have accomplished great things. Yeah. <laughs> In the past.
1: Yeah. Does yeah. that even make sense? I don't know. <laughs> no, I mean you 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 have to I think I think that is that's what I try to do always. I try to, to be better than how I was before and like yeah. sort of use that as a marker. Hmm? I get nope. like um a lot of times people like uh I don't know, pay attention and um sort of compare a lot with others and i see it and i see how it it deteriorates my friend's mental health like i see it happening but it's yeah. very hard because you don't want to come off as like sort of um preachy mm-hmm. in those situations especially if somebody's already upset like the last thing you want to do is like make them more upset by like making them feel like what they're feeling is like petty even yeah. if it is. <laughs> um, so it's yeah. hard. It's hard to handle in that moment. Um, but I think that's one of the things that has served me best in life is to not, you know, compare myself in in those negative ways where I can help it. You know, I'm human. Yeah. Of course, I do it sometimes also, but not very often. I don't know. No,
0: I completely agree. It's it's super unhealthy. And it's really funny because I also realized that, like, no one is comparing on the same rubric. Like, no. <laughs> the way that I compare myself to other people is different than how you compare yourself to other people. Yep. So, like, it's just so interesting how, like, different people have all the same information, but their perspective of something is completely different yeah. because they're a different person.
1: Yeah, uh, for sure. For sure. It's, it's and, and, and how weird. people can think of... Like sometimes somebody will be like, "I can't believe this is happening." And be like, "Holy shit! I've never, I've literally never thought of this. Like, I would <laughs> never thought about somebody is getting foil on their cover or something as being a thing that would make me upset." Yeah. But it 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 just it's it's because you you want certain things for yourself and you expect certain things for yourself, and then when you don't get them and somebody else does, it almost feels like it was a battle and you lost when in reality, you guys are both in separate arenas and you're not even crossing paths in that way. You know what I mean? Yeah,
0: Um, no, I do. And you know what, what really upsets me is that like, it doesn't like, it doesn't make sense for you to be mad at somebody else that they got something that you didn't get because them getting it, isn't what made you not get it. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? Exactly this what is, I mean, yeah. This, like, really annoys me. There's actually a podcast I was listening to last night. It's really great. I, actually, I think it's new. Um, It's called Book Friends Forever. And it's Elvina Ling, who is an oh, yeah. editor at Little Brown, and um, Cindy Lynn, who is an author and illustrator. And I absolutely adore the way that they discuss certain aspects of being in publishing, especially as two women of color. And there was – there's one episode that I would – recommend people look into because it's about quotas or the myth of quotas um, and how, especially with the rise of diversity, people are like, oh, you need to um, think like publishers want to meet a quota or there is a quota and like they already have one Chinese fantasy, so they can't have another Chinese fantasy, like that whole frickin' Highlander thing. Um, but they were also talking, um, I think that they were inspired to talk about it because of the whole college scandal about people who buy their way into college. And comparing that to how people are irrationally mad about um, affirmative action, yeah. And like, what really bothers me, and I never could put it into words until I listened to this podcast, was because people who are mad at the idea of affirmative action and minorities getting like getting a chance to um, have their applications looked at for these competitive colleges is that they are convinced that these kids are taking away a slot from, the, from them or their kids. Yep. And it's like they're convinced that the only reason that they, they didn't get in or their kid didn't get in is because this black kid got in or this you know, Latinx kid got in or this Asian kid got in. And how do you know? Where's your proof? Where's your direct correlation where they called you up? Where like this university called you up and's it's like, Hey, I'm sorry. Little Stephen couldn't get in because we had to let this, Steven. this person of color. I'm sorry. Stephen is my generic dude name, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like there's, you can't no. There is no proof. And the, and this anger at affirmative action is because you got to admit, you honestly believe that, that they're taking something from you. They're taking away a slot from you. It's this, also this belief, like, Immigrants are taking your jobs, kind of belief. Or, like, the diversity movement is taking away a publishing sl- slot from your white fantasy. But it's not true. It's yeah. not. It's, and, ra- and it's also
1: I- just racism.
0: It is racism. <laughs> it just like, really, really bothers me on a level that, like, is it makes it very hard for me to discuss without getting bad
1: because... I don't blame you. I mean, I'm sure that, you you know, you went to a really good school. I'm sure you heard that shit often. Um, my nephew was heard about, you know, when he was applying for college and like his, his majority white school, people would make little comments to him about, how He's so lucky because he's black and he's um, all these things that he's going to get into any school he wants. Mm-hmm. And he did. I talked about this once um, on Twitter, how he didn't realize that was racist until he went to college. And his, like, Black friends were like, "Um, you know that's not okay that they said that to you, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, And he just sort of, like, said it, like, offhand because he didn't realize. He really didn't realize. And, like, he explained that to me. Like, he didn't get it because he grew up with microaggressions from Mm -hmm. white people. And he never really talked about it at home because he didn't think it was a thing until he had friends who were you know black friends and brown friends from like other places that were like that's not okay bro and like now he's getting it but like seeing him realize that it broke my heart a little bit because here are these kids that are supposed to be his friends and they're they're being racist towards him, you know, from Mm -hmm. things that they probably heard from their parents at home. And they don't even realize is racist because they're kids themselves. They
0: Um, don't. They don't. And, and, but that's the problem with our society is because it's so entrenched in racist, microaggressive language that we can't identify it like easily, like even people of color can't identify it easily until we get more context and it's explained clearly to us. And we're like, that's why it's always bothering me. That's why,
2: yeah. but
0: it's so hard. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know why I, it's, it's really shitty to say this to, you know, um, these amazingly smart, capable, wonderful children of color is that you are telling them that baseline, they weren't good enough to get in just baseline. Yeah. They needed the boost of the color of their skin and the charity of those in power in order to be able to compete with their white peers, which is playing in to the, the racist narrative that white that white people are are innately superior. Yeah. Like and which is just like BS. And the publishing version of that is when people say. Because they think they 're defending themselves i don't I, i'm not saying we need i 'm not here for diverse books i'm here for good books, yep, and it's just like do you realize what that comment sounds like? It means that you think that people of color can't write as well, just baseline cannot write as well as white people
1: and you're also dismissing the entire issue of the lack of representation by saying. Mm-hmm well if 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 it's a good book, then it'll get published, and that's all that matters. yeah, and you're completely dismissing the studies and everything that has shown that we are kept out of publishing at a much higher rate that books mm-hmm. by and about white kids and white people are the majority of the industry still to mm-hmm. this day. and yeah. it's it's a lot of gaslighting because you're, you're saying you're saying to us, if you just wrote well, then you would get in when in reality we're held to such a higher standard that by the time we do get published we're running circles around our peers and we still can't get the support and the push that we deserve a lot of times because people don't know what to do with our books cuz the people at the publisher are usually white and they can't relate in the same way and I think we both like bringing it back around to the sales thing I think we both got really lucky in that Mm -hmm. our publishers recognized that our stories had value and um you know from my end on Scholastic I know I had a Latinx woman um really pushing for my book behind the scenes which is one of the reasons why I got invited to the sales conference and it's like that that's opening doors for me because when she read my chapters you know um aside from you know a big team of people it's not just uh Lizette shout out Lizette how you doing (laughs) Lizette I love you um um, but when she read my chapters you know she teared up and like she felt really connected to it because she saw her childhood in it you know what yeah. I mean? And, like, mm-hmm. that makes a really huge difference. It does. Um, and, and, yeah, it's just – it's it's really hard, especially with – we've been having some problems on Twitter the past couple of days. There's this one UK writer who's just, like, doing oh, the the most – I don't know what's going on, but she needs to listen. Lady, you need to listen to ride or die. Okay. <laughs> yeah,
0: I mean, and honestly – I. He, <sighs> I don't know. I go back and forth about this all the time because we talk, uh, people talk about these issues on, on Twitter, give free emotional labor because that is what it is Mm -hmm. all the time. So if you wanted to go into the backlog of these conversations, then you would have so much, so many sources of free education and you would be a better person for it on the other side i do understand that there's a lot of white noise on twitter mm-hmm. um pun not intended and <laughs> i get it <laughs> and <laughs> um and it is hard to find things if you don't have a starting point point. and so i i have points in my life where i can look back and and really pinpoint the times where i was very ignorant about a subject and i'm lucky that i um you know, was provided with sources of education so that I could be a better person. Um, So I don't want to ever say this person is just racist or bigoted and that's just how they will be for the rest of their life. And that's who they are. That's their label official forever, because I do believe that people can change. It's just really hard because (laughs) once you see the pattern of problematicness and, and you watch the person you predict, you're like, okay, and now she's going to bring up her mental health. Now she's going to bring up, yeah, it's a cycle, you know, bullying and, and, uh, toxic, toxic, um, you know, moms and blah, blah, blah. And, and they do it every single time. You're kind of like, what do I do? You know, like yeah. you get frustrated. And, and so those are the two different sides of the spectrum for people, um, for marginalized people watching these conversations happen over and over again. And it's, it's hard to reconcile those two sides of yourself, the side that wants to believe even the best in people on the side that has just seen them disappoint you over and over again.
1: Yeah. And for years too, because like you going through these conversations for years and years and it's not the first time it's happened. It's not even the 50th time it's happened. And then these people who are just jumping into the community, A, want to be experts when they have no fucking idea what they're talking about. And B, want to get so frustrated that they call everybody a mob immediately when it's like, you we've been, you don't understand. We've been through this so many times. And it'll be the same women, the same white women who rally against men who write about boobs being um, boobalicious or whatever it is in f- fantasy books. You know, like really? the yeah. one the ex- excerpt that that's was floating foolish. around about boobs being like two trapped puppies in, a, in the woman's sweater. Some crazy oh, yeah. shit like that. And it's like, yeah, that's really frustrating. That's exactly what you do to us constantly. And and, here's my thing about,
0: you know, I, I said offhand, I I mentioned that they'll always bring up their mental health. I'm not trying to discount the importance of someone having self-care and taking care of their mental health. Um, I just, I just kind of want to also point out that statistically, um, uh, people of color and people of marginalized communities are, are much more, uh, are much more likely to have mental health issues, are much more likely to have depression, anxiety, um, things that come about from just living a life of being oppressed. Um, not meaning that um, white communities don't also struggle with uh, mental health issues. It's, it's definitely something that I think everyone should get care for. But but sometimes I see it brought up in a way that's like, I'm I have mental illness and you could never understand that. So yeah. lay off with me yeah. when that's not true. A lot of the people who are bringing up these issues are are bringing it up because they don't want mm-hmm. your creative work to be triggering their very, very real mental health issues as well. Um, and, and I feel like there's some erasure going on when <laughs> those statements are said.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've had that happen to me often uh, with people saying, well, you're attacking me because I have this mental health issue, it's like, well, I actually have the same thing and I'm not attacking you for that. I'm attacking you because you're being racist. And it's not even an attack. I just told you, hey, this thing is racist. Maybe don't do it. And then it just becomes a whole thing instead of taking a step back and saying, you know what, maybe you're right. And nine out of 10 times, then later on, those same people will just still apologize for what they said, but they won't apologize to me. And they won't yeah. sort of take back how they framed me as a bully in order to gain sympathy for themselves. Um, and we often become the, the victims of, of these things online. Mm-hmm. And that's why... For the most part now, like, I talk about things here and there, like, sort of in a joking way. But I talk about it most o- mostly on the podcast because I'm able to express myself and y- none of you can talk. <laughs> <laughs> if you guys want to be, like,
0: tweeting at me while we're recording, I'll, I'll represent you and yell at Clarabelle for you. No, she, no she won't. <laughs> I won't do it. You. Um, no, You know, sometimes I, like, wish that we could treat um, someone, um, I, someone pointing out... A a problematic representation—the way we treat recalling um, (laughs) like a a bad product. Like, you know what I'm saying, though. Like, if there's a if there's like a new model of a car, and the and the brake pads were just like like you know are just like bad, and they need to recall that car, no one will be like, oh, think about the
1: feelings of Toyota. (laughs) I mean, they might. I feel like they might. maybe they will. And also nothing against Toyota. I love Toyota, but like, um,
0: it's, 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 of course there's more subjectiveness in it when it's a creative uh, product, but it is the similar thing. You're hurting somebody. You're hurting somebody if their if their brakes don't work and you're hurting someone if you're, um, feeding into and spreading, um, racist stereotypes and mindsets with your work. And, and that's kind of, what it sh- I wish that we could just find a, a way to kind of see it a little bit more that way um, because because it's not anything against you as a human being, as the author. You know, I, I think that that's also the case. And I think that someone's mental health is, is affected when they feel like they're being personally attacked uh, for being a racist when that – I don't think that anyone that I've ever seen speak up against a problematic piece of work is – Um, starts off being like you are racist they're always saying in the text I read this and that is um, that is a racist mindset
1: yeah I think there has to sort of be uh, I mean there somebody did write a guide once about um, sort of what to do when you get called out but people aren't gonna listen I think it's just uh, Misa oh uh, yeah absolutely and um, I'll put that in the yeah Show notes. I'm just. I'm writing down stuff now because I'm really bad at saying like I'm going to put this in the show notes and then I don't put it, as Kat pointed out yeah. to me the other day. Yeah. It was so, yeah.
0: And she wrote this time will be different, which is coming out this year. Um, yes. Just, you know, if we're using her guide, I just want to give her a little shout out. We
1: love. We love yeah.
0: Um. So yeah. And and it was and it's very nuanced. Her guide is very nuanced, and and it also is um. It's not. Um, it's not accusatory. Yeah. It's so, which I, which I really appreciated that um, the way that she wrote
1: it um, in that sense. Another thing that we should talk about is that this podcast is airing Monday, and tomorrow is my cover reveal. Oh my gosh! Yes, <laughs> everyone. Get onto Twitter. Tomorrow <laughs> is Tuesday, because
0: this is Airing Wednesday, And look at this beautiful cover. I swear I'm like I cannot I'm I'm still not
1: over it. I, I'm really excited keep, about it. Yeah. I keep on
0: thinking of different things that I can get it printed on. <laughs> Your you know, face. like like yeah, I'm just gonna get like a big face tattoo. Like placemats and uh, like things like things that I use in everyday life so I can like pull out the placemat and be like oh there it is
1: <laughs> yeah I mean it is I I, I have it printed because I have like the initial sketch and then the finished product in two d- separate frames in my living room and it's so cool because okay. you can see like the progression of like where it started and where it went to um mm-hmm. uh, which I would I'm gonna try and see if the um, the illustrator would ever do like a blog post with me about that, um, that would be really cool. I'm going to reach out to her. Um, but yeah, I'm really excited about it. I'm also in true Clarabel f- form um, launching my official pre-order page, which will be <laughs> at Um and that, uh, I'm not kidding, that is literally going to be the URL that is, it hosts my pre-order page. It's going to have links to all the places you can buy it. It's also going to have a media kit with multiple headshots, um, 3D renderings of the book, gifts that you can use on Instagram. And it's also going to have an Instagram stories um, kit. So if you want to help me spread the word about uh, Ghost Squad on Instagram stories, there are videos that you can use um to tell people where they can buy it, which is by dot and right. um, and yeah, I'm just really excited to finally be able to share the cover with everybody, um, as I really love it and I think it's really beautiful. And people seemed really excited from the just the teaser thing that I dropped on Friday. So
0: of course they are, even though that teaser was kind of scary, dude. It was scary. It was that witch, huh? I don't know about that. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> although the book is creepy. Yeah, it's but the prize for best um, the best reaction tweet goes to Ryan.
1: <laughs> oh my God, that her hair evaporated, or wi- he was her, like wig, her wig, ev- wig, evaporated. Like her wig evaporated. That's like how shook she is, or something. <laughs> <laughs> like he said, that's gonna be him on Tuesday.
2: Oh, oh, Ryan,
1: Ryan Lasala, we love you. Yeah, we do. We appreciate each and every one of your absolutely
0: ridiculous reactions.
1: <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> that we do. <laughs> He said he's going to wear tights with, um, well, I told him, I asked him if he would wear uh, tights that I'm making with the cover on it um, to help use his butt to promote my book. Um, And he said yes, because he's a true friend. So think about that, everybody. Think about it. What if I wore like a whole bodysuit? You would beat him. But I feel like he would do that and then make a cape. Oh man! You know, i sit on a freaking podcast. It's going to be public.
0: Well, why do I do this to myself? My wonderful ideas. Ryan is
1: already sewing. It is too late. I know late. Ryan. Stop listening to the podcast. How great! Cool He's at I the fabric know. store right now. Like, move to make a cake. Pushing, pushing older ladies aside. Like, they just want to get their yarn and stuff. I picture him spinning in the aisles as he grabs all of the glitter and things that he needs. Like he has like, I imagine he like has like
0: a bunch of spools of ribbon and he's just twirling. <laughs> like twirling. They're like spinning in
1: the air. Yes, around him. I agree with everything. <laughs> this podcast just got weird. <laughs> um, it didn't just get weird. I'm sorry to bring it to you. It's been weird. We've been talking about poops on here. It's a weird podcast.
0: It is a weird podcast, but like, if you guys are still listening, then we appreciate you.
1: <laughs> Leave us reviews, guys. Come on. I know.
0: I was just going to be like, this is a good transition because we always forget. If you like the podcast, then please rate and review on whichever site. You on list- iTunes. iTunes, I guess, is the number one, right?
1: Yeah itunes is the most important one just because that's like where a lot of the listeners can find us and that's where people pay attention to reviews the most unfortunately so we are on like spotify and we're on google play or whatever the thing is called for google Podcasts. yeah google play um <laughs> sorry google i love you don't bury <laughs> our podcast please uh, oh. but if you, even if you listen like on other mediums, if you could leave us a review on iTunes, that would be really great. Um, one of our reviews is actually our banner on Twitter. It's the one that says our hair is really great. Um, oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a good opportunity. Yeah, no-
0: we, uh, we really do appreciate everyone who listens and, and, you know, obviously we're asking a little favor of you, but yeah, if you do like, if you do listen in like the podcast, then, then that would be a wonderful um, thing to do for us.
1: And, and one more thing before we get to the interview is that we are going to la- launch a Patreon um, in the near future. We're going to have things like Uh, stickers and t-shirts or social media shout outs or even podcast shout outs if you want to really give us a lot of money um for people and also
0: we when we record we cut a lot of stuff so you know there might be bonus content yeah mm -hmm.
1: we're we're definitely going to have bonus content as well um so look out for that um we'll announce it like on our twitters and all of the twitters that we possess (laughs) um the writer die account as well um If you guys could support us, it would be great because, you know, I've said this before, but it does cost money um, to run the podcast and we're not currently making uh, money off of it, but mostly because we haven't really tried. (laughs) True.
0: Actually, like right now you're, um, you know, here's my shout out to Clarabel is that she does all all of the editing in her own time. She, um, you know, takes care of the website. She takes, you know, she pays for the domain, everything like that. So actually it's costing... Um, money right now, which is worth it because we adore the community that yeah. we have around this podcast. Um, but uh, again, you know, we have to pay bills. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and
1: so the, the goal is going to be to cover the cost of the website which is 300 a year. So it's not yeah. a lot. And then I pay $20 a month for the hosting on the website that gives us all of the stats and everything and like sort of feeds the podcast out to different outlets. Um, so we just want to cover that um for to start and then anything extra would be awesome so we could dedicate more time to the podcast and to interviewing guests and to doing more like fun stuff uh for you guys yep oh i I agree with all that (laughs) one final thing we do have our very first live event that we're hosting
0: oh yeah um which is
1: the very first dv pit um panel at Porter Square Books, and that is on the 10th. Of yes, my May line. 10th. May 10th at Porter May Square Books. Um, at 7, 7 p.m. Eastern. Yes, yeah, 7 p.m. We're also going to um, live stream it. Um, it'll be live streamed. I'm going to see what, if we can use both of our phones, Kat. We can probably do it both on um, Instagram Live and Periscope. And, and Periscope, yeah. Yeah, okay. um, so we'll, we'll be doing that on the Ride or Die accounts for both um and we'll, you know, make sure to tweet it out and everything ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, we're really really excited about that um very first dv pit panel. I I predict tears from Beth. Um which oh, yeah. I'm excited about. I'm worried about her lashes. Oh, but yeah. she gets she gets really good lash extensions. She, she does. They're awesome. Um, but yeah, so that's all the like little housekeeping stuff that we have for the week. Yeah. We she got to the interview now because it's already yeah. like 40 minutes. <laughs> Our guest this
0: week is Joan He. She is the author of Descendant of the Crane, out right now with Albert Whitman and her upcoming book, The Ones We're Meant to Find, which will be out with Roaring Brook. Joan,
2: how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited yeah I love I love this podcast but yeah I'm doing well it's um a couple of days out from release now and things are finally settling in and it's like oh, I have a book out and people are getting it in their hands and it's amazing to see like just like the physical copies um and people reading them it's amazing yeah yeah and People's your book is amazing. gorgeous
1: yeah I love your cover so much it's really
2: beautiful yeah yeah I got so I got so lucky with that I it was like obviously like in this industry you know that um authors don't really have control over their cover so beforehand I kind of like preemptively like vomited all of my cover off <laughs> onto a word document and then <laughs> I shared it with my publisher hoping that they wouldn't think I was like being a control freak and when they hired um when they told me that they had hired Feifei Run who is the illustrator I was so relieved because I'd seen her work. She actually did the cover for um, uh, A Thousand Beginnings and Endings, which oh, I love that one. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's really yeah nice. And I, I knew I was in good hands from there on out. Yeah.
1: Yay. So we're going to rewind a bit before the sort of like, you know, roller coaster ride that was your release and talk a little bit about how you started writing and how you got your first agent. Um, so, can you sort of tell us a little bit more about that?
2: Yeah, um, I started writing, um, well, I didn't always know that I wanted to be a writer. I was um, doing professional art for a long time, like doing oil painting and drawing. And it wasn't really until um, high school when things were getting stressful with the art stuff and then also the SATs <laughs> that I turned to writing fan fiction. And from there, I kind of got into writing my own original works and I queried my first book um, like the spring of sophomore year of high school. It was really bad. I sent it out to one agent. I remember I um, classify the genre as slice of life. <laughs> I oh, I <laughs> it was that. like anime? I don't know. I don't, it, was, it was really bad. I didn't know sure. it was contemporary back then. Oh my God, let's make that a
1: thing.
0: <laughs>
2: slice <laughs> yes. of life. I love yeah. it. Um, okay, first of all, shout
1: out fan fiction. I yeah. just feel like so many people started writing fan fiction. I would say definitely 90% of our guests have started off writing fan fiction. Um, <laughs> second, do you know the title of this book?
2: Um, Do you remember it? The title of the one I queried? The, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it doesn't make any sense now. It was called the the Gates of White. I have no idea why it's called that. white. Okay, all right. Yeah, um, it was it was weird. There were a lot of dreams involved. It was <laughs> strange, and yeah, I'm only one agent saw it. Um, I'm not going to say who, because I don't want to embarrass our <laughs> agents. But yeah, um, after that book, I wrote um, two more. One of them was a dystopian, of course, because the course. year was like 2012. And then the other one was a new adult. Like I was clearly very much trying to like ride those bandwagons, even though at the time I didn't know that when a book sells, it takes two years for it to come out or like one to two years. So clearly those trends I was reading, they were already like moving past me, but I thought like, oh my God, I have to like get on them. So I was like rushing to write those. And I queried both of those, but, um, and I queried them more extensively than the first book because i learned a lot more about querying and I knew like how to write query letters somewhat at this point, even though like, even now I still feel like I don't, know how to write a query letter um but then I it was the fall of my um senior year of high school that I started drafting um this book called Hesperia which is actually uh, now descendant of the crane and there was a lot of stuff that went between that change but we can talk about that later but yeah I drafted that book it took me a really long time to draft um, I kind of, kind of took a writing break actually in between because I started college and Um, I just didn't, I felt like real life was a lot more exciting than writing. So I didn't really touch that book for a while. And, um, it wasn't until fall of my college, my freshman year of college that I actually finished the book and I started revising it and I kept on revising it. I started sending queries out for it, um, started getting rejections again, but it did seem like I'd improved because the response rate, um, not the response rate, the request rate For the query, like agents requesting partials and then fulls, it seemed higher than before. And so I was hopeful and I was hoping that this book would be the one. But I started getting more rejections and then came fall of my sophomore year of college. It was 2015. Um, At this point, I entered several writing contests with this book. Um, like things like the writer's voice and pitch slam and nest pitch, like all of these contests. I'm not sure if all of them are still around.
1: I've never heard of any
2: of those. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's funny because I think I actually, I think Amanda foodie was actually a, a judge for nest pitch. I submitted to her back then. It's weird how like all these old contests like had mentors who are now like obviously out with books. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, it was fall of sophomore year and I'd submit to a few contests and I felt confident of this book enough, despite the rejections that when I then heard of Pitch Wars, which is obviously like this really big contest in the writing community, I submitted to that and I submitted pretty last minute, actually. I didn't actually submit to the mentor who picked me because back then, um, I'm not sure if it's still the case, but back then you could swap entries. So my book was actually swapped to the mentor who picked me, and shout out to Mara Rutherford. Um, she's actually coming out with a book, 2019, too, um, called "Coral uh, Kingdom of Coral and Pearl." Oh, sorry, not "Kingdom." Crown, Crown. It, the title has changed. It was "Crown of Coral and Pearl." She was my 2015 Pitch Wars mentor, and we worked on the book together. Um, and I didn't get my agent through the showcase round of Pitch Wars, um, but I did get my agent uh, via querying afterwards. And that was sort of the winter of 2015 and the beginning of 2016 that I signed with my agent, who is still um, my current agent, John Kuczyk of Folio Lit. Sorry, that was really long.
1: <laughs> no, no, no it's it was was not. No, I like <laughs> that, that. was good.
0: I like your, your journey. And you went through some really interesting like points within your writing journey because like you experienced a lot of different parts of the community through different aspects like, um, like the contest that you were able to join. And you're, I know you're still friends with Amanda Foodie So I think that's really telling that it doesn't matter. Like if you get an agent or a book deal out of something, you could still get a friend in the community.
2: Yeah. And I think it really goes to show that, like, I know a lot of times in publishing, it's scary because you see people with like agents and then book deals and, it's like you feel like like on a completely different tier than them, but it's just weird how it all shakes out in the end because I mean, like everyone's timeline is different and Mm -hmm. like, yeah, it's, I think it's really telling. Like, for example, that I'm like, I'm coming out with a book with my, um, mentor who is my 2015 pitch wars mentor like we've both mentored mentees who like got book deals before us and it's like a strange feeling sometimes where it's like you're behind someone but then in the end like because the timelines are all different you never really know like where you're gonna be on your journey compared to someone else
1: yeah and and behind is a relative Thing to be like behind in what sense you know because you, kn- yeah. you just never know how things are gonna pan out for books yeah. anyway um
0: yeah it's and I love it's that so you... weird because we, I think last episode we said we're psychic because we do those pre-talks and mm-hmm. we always end up talking about something that comes up during the interview and we were just talking about how um when you compare yourself like to other people in the industry like it's more of a detriment to you um mm-hmm. than like a positive thing and this whole idea of, like, oh, someone has a book out before me, like, does kind of fall into the whole comparison thing. And I think if I thought that I had a mentor who secretly didn't want me to get a book deal before they did, and they were my mentor, I would be, like, really weirded out by that. So, yeah, I feel sad. <laughs> yeah. So I think I think that, like, it's, you know,
2: it's, it's yeah, it's all relative, and honestly, it's negligible because it's so subjective (laughs) yeah yeah it's so yeah and it's so unpredictable too and you obviously have no control over when things happen and what happens so Mm -hmm.
1: um so the book went through sort of a transformation from when you first wrote it to it becoming descendant of of the crane um can you tell me a little bit about that
2: yeah um (laughs) this is gonna get i feel like this could get long too i'll try to keep it
1: no don't
2: no speak your mind okay um so we so like because my agent um he's editorial we um we revised the book before going out on the first round of submission and we went out in april of 2016 because i would signed with him again january 2016 so yeah we went out after a couple months and um We had a submission list. It was really exciting getting to see all the different editors and imprints that would be um, reading the book. And we sent out the submission and I kind of like waited. And my agent is pretty good about nudging people. And so we started getting responses in um, pretty quickly, I would say compared to what i've heard about like some other people being on submission like sometimes you have crickets for months which is the worst but we ended up getting uh, all of our feedback really back within 2 months or so and it was all rejections um and there was one revise and resubmit and i was looking at the revise and resubmit and it would have necessitated rewriting the first 25% of the book uh, because the I'm not for people who've read the pitch. I know, like you know, that the dad dies in the beginning of the story. While well, the dad used to die a bit later in the story, but now he dies like off the page and off the screen before the story even begins. And that's actually thanks to one of thanks to that revise and resubmit that the editor brought it up. And I was like, that's a good point, like moving the death beforehand. So it's funny because we didn't end up like signing with that editor but it's still funny how like your rejections and feedback during submission can help shape Mm -hmm. the final book. um yeah so like I kind of like when I was considering whether or not to do that revise and resubmit I was also looking at the other rejections and I just got the sense that the book hadn't really made it to like things like acquisitions like the rejections were nice but they kind of pointed to like where I felt like were fundamental issues like wrong with the book. And one thing that I was getting was that um, across rejections was that the world was either confusing or it wasn't immersive enough. Basically, like people had issues with the world. And so I was looking at the world and like, as I said, the book was titled Hesperia at this point because um, I hadn't made it a fully Chinese world. It was like half Chinese, half Rome because I was scared that by making it fully Chinese, it wouldn't, it'd be too hard for um, readers to get into if they weren't familiar with that world. But I did feel like the fact that I was diluting it down, it was contributing to some of these world issues that were being brought up in the submission rejections. So when I started revising it the summer of 2016, I made the decision to make the world fully um, Chinese. And that was, um, an ongoing process, like layering in all the Chinese elements, and then later on when I started uh, started up college again, it was I was entering my junior year that I was actually taking some Chinese history courses at the same time, which was really helpful to like help me later in that stuff better. Um, yeah, so I was like revising it, and then as I was revising it, I got to the end of the first twenty five percent, which was the part I knew I was revising for, for the revise and resubmit. And when I got there, I realized that the beginning of the book was now so much better than the rest of the book that it just felt like I probably had to rewrite all of it. So that's what I ended up doing. I ended up rewriting it throughout my entirety of junior year of college. And it wasn't until like April of 2017, um, almost a year after we had first gone out with the book on submission, that I finished a completely rewritten draft, and I sent it off to my agent. And then my agent got married, so there is this long window of time where my agent was obviously like, like off, like having his own life, while I was just like, oh no, like what do I do how now? Dare he? Yeah, like how dare? <laughs> yeah, it's just funny because it was like I've been working so long on this, and I was like rushing, and I was like, oh god, like I've already taken a year, and then I sent it off, and I had nothing to do now, so I ended up doing what. I feel like a lot of writers, um, are told to do, which is write the next thing. And so I actually wrote, um, so during like May of 2017 to, uh, June of 2017, I was off from college. I was back home from some for summer break and I wrote the entirety of the ones we're meant to find the book that actually just sold earlier this year and is coming out with Macmillan. Um, so yeah, I did that. And then my agent came back. Um, and he read the rewritten version of what is now titled Descendant of the Crane. And he was like, okay, this is better than what we had before, but it still needs revisions. And that was, honestly, it was a hard moment just because I worked so long in this book and I wasn't sure if it was like going to be good enough to sell. And because we had already gone out to like 15 editors on submission round one, I knew that submission round two was going to be a bit smaller, so... Like we wouldn't really be resubmitting to people, we'd be submitting to ten new editors. So it just felt like the chances of this book selling were like dwindling. And given how much I, how much work I put in, I wasn't sure if I went to like put in more just for the inevitable like chance that it might not sell. But in the end, I guess like I had like I talked to some writer friends, and they're like there is an audience for this book because that was, what I was worried about. I wasn't sure if the direction I'd taken it, like making it super like political and like Chinese and like, like complex is like nice term. But back then it was very complicated. I wasn't sure if like people would read it. So when my agent was like, yeah, like I feel like the characters, like they need to be like a bit more relatable. I was like, okay, like no one's going to want to read this book. And I didn't feel like revising it. But in the end I was able to see that, like, there was, like, there was readership out there, like, I had made it fully Chinese for a reason, and this was the last book I'd written while I was a teen myself, so it does carry, like, a lot of, like, I don't know, it's, like, I sort of grown throughout this book, so I was, like, mm-hmm. okay, I'm gonna revise it one last time, and I revised it with my agent for a couple months, and then we went out on submission round two, um, late July, 2017 and as you know publishing is pretty dead during the summer but we started getting uh feedback again and rejections again and I wasn't really banking on anything so I started writing another book and then late August of 2017 like a couple like two months later we got an email from Eliza Swift at Albert Whitman and she was like, she loved the story and she was going to take it to second reads. And by the way, was Joan open to making it third person? Uh, <laughs> and, and I was like, because that, that was the one thing that hadn't changed through the rewrites. The book used to be in first person present and it stayed first person present despite the rewrite. And so when she said that, I was like, part of me was like, all right, like let's, I was like, I told John, I was like, let's tell her I'm a game because oh. I've like, I obviously... I don't want to like shut down this opportunity. And yeah. But on the inside, I was like, Oh no, (laughs) no, no, I can't, can't make it third person. So yeah, we were like sitting tight and we were trying to see like, um, if like another editor might bite, because once you do get an offer from someone, you can kind of nudge like the other editors who have the book and be like, Hey, like we have an offer on the table. Like, can you read by the certain date? And the thing is, one other editor came really, really, really close to um, winning the book. But in the end, it didn't work out. And that was probably the most painful part of submission, like getting so close and then getting that rejection. But in the end, like now, obviously having edited the book with Eliza and having seen the final product, and I can completely like with 100% confidence say that, like, she was the right editor for me. And like making the book third person was actually something that helped fix a lot of the issues about like the world and the plot being too complex. Because when it was in first person, it was like you were limited by uh, the main character's narration a bit. And explaining things didn't feel as organic as when it was, as when it is now in third person. So it all worked out in the end. But yeah, like I would say it definitely was a moment where like getting that offer wasn't necessarily like the confetti and like the fireworks that I had built it up to be in my head because like it didn't go as expected and there was like like a little bit of sadness at the end but I think yeah it just goes to show that like things don't necessarily go as you expect but they can all work out fine in the end yeah
1: that is a mood. Things <laughs> do not always go yeah. how you expect. I can relate to that. Um, so, I I think that not wanting to write like our heritage or culture um, into our books um, is something that a lot of authors of color can relate to. Um, I think it's awesome that you ultimately sort of gave yourself permission to make the world, like, fully Chinese. Can you tell me what sort of drove you to say, like, fuck it, I'm not going to make this, like, a Rome-inspired um, world. I'm just going to go all out. What, what made you, what pushed you to that?
2: Um, I think, like, two answers. One would be, I mean... Um, for one, like I said, I was getting re- I was getting some rejections that brought up issues in the world. And because the world was always half Chinese, half-room, like when the editors saw it, there wasn't anyone who was like, this isn't Chinese enough, which I know is like a feedback that some people, like some Asian authors get or um, that their world isn't like other enough. But I didn't get that luckily, but I did get like feedback about the world again, like not really cohering, like not really making enough sense and I realized that that stemmed from the fact that when I was thinking about the world like I was actively cutting off sources of inspiration because that would that would be too Chinese right like that'd be too much and I couldn't really like dig into the culture that explains why their customs why their myths why their ways that people dress and why their ways that people think like I couldn't really dig into that because I blocked it off for myself and not yeah. being able to do that, I felt like just objectively made the world weaker. Um, but I would say, like the other part was honestly seeing um, fellow like Asian authors getting deals for their book. Um, I remember specifically. Um, I remember seeing Julie Dow uh, sell her book and like, I'd follow that the journey of that book because Julie has obviously been um, so open about her journey. She's her blog back then was such a source of inspiration oh for me. Yeah. Yes. I love yeah. Her blog. <laughs> yeah. And like when I saw her deal and I saw that like she had used like fully um, like Chinese names for her main characters, like, I, it, I think that that's what gave me the courage to give myself that permission, which is why I think it's so important that there are more stories out there. Um, because I think when I started writing the book in 2000, in late 2013, like the only Chinese inspired book out there with like a Asian cover was by a white author. And like, there was nothing else really that was recent. And so I was like, okay, like, well, if there's no one like me who has succeeded writing something that is fully Chinese, then like where are the chances that I'm going to be that one? Right. So I think a huge part I would say was starting to see that influx of deals, um, books selling that looked like the books that I hadn't given myself permission to write. That's, I think it's great that you were able to be inspired by, um, by other Asian authors,
0: like writing about their culture. Cause I think that it's it's really important for us to like as a community like come together and celebrate each other. And sometimes I feel like sometimes publishing tries to pit us against each other, especially when they're saying, "Oh, we already have a Chinese fantasy, or we already have this type of a you know insert culture fantasy." Um, and it's it's really important that we just not let them do that to us because we are always stronger when we're together. Um, and and I think it's just wonderful that. That you got to have, you know, the book that you, like, fit who you are because you were inspired by some people who came before you. Yeah. Yeah, And
1: it's it's so important that Julie doing it sort of opened the door for you to feel like you could as well. Um, That's amazing. And we love Julie.
2: We do love Julie. (laughs) Yeah. Julie is
0: awesome. Yeah. At your launch, I really loved that you and Liz Lim, um, talked about kind of some of the, uh, creative decisions that you were making when it came to the type of cultural specific things that you were including, which you kind of touched on already. Um, and very specifically, I really liked how you guys talked about language. Um, and even you and I were talking before, um, this interview about pronunciation of things and, you know, it's, it's different across cultures too. Like, you know, just because someone is, you know, Asian, doesn't mean that they understand how a different asian language is spoken um and i just like really love the conversation that's going on around that especially when it comes to
2: diaspora writers so could you touch a little bit on that yeah um so i guess i can start i'll start with like uh the names of the characters um so all my characters have um fully chinese names like mandarin names but um Like, there are some that may look English to English speakers. Like, for example, there is a character whose name is spelled L-I-L-I-A-N, and in Mandarin that's pronounced as Li-Lian. But to an English speaker, that looks like Lillian, right? And that was actually done um, purposefully in the sense that I went to – give my characters name that were at once authentic, but also easy for the majority of my readers to sort of like, like visually see and perceive and like translate into a sound in their head without butchering it in a way that would sound like bad. (laughs) Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, Like, there's a character whose name, like, looks like cayenne, like cayenne pepper, but it's pronounced cayenne, but it's still more, like, the cayenne is more pronounceable than, let's say, a character whose first name might start with, like, a Q-I-O-N-G, which is my Chinese name. Like, Q-I-O-N-G actually pronounces it as but no one would, like, no English speaker would think of that. And I think if you saw that name on the page without an, any understanding of the language, it would just either, it wouldn't translate to sounds at all in your head or it'd become like some sort of gibberish. And that's something that I wanted to kind of like spare my characters from, considering that my own last name is something that is pretty hard um, for English speakers to pronounce, like, just at a glance. Like, I wanted to give my characters names like, that at a glance wouldn't sound, like, funny or weird. Yeah. Um, and then as for, like, which uh, Mandarin terms, like, like just terms to include, um, I included terms I felt like I couldn't find the English words for um, that would do justice to what I was trying to describe. So, like, a lot of the clothing items Um, I use, like, Mandarin terms for just because, like, in English, the closest equivalent would be robes, and they're obviously a lot of different kinds of robes, and it wouldn't nearly capture the visual image I was trying to create as if you would as if you were to google like the mandarin term which is like han or like ru so i included those terms like i kind of when i was judging like which terms to include i was like okay like does the english term suffice like if you were to google this like would you get an image that really captured the cultural artifact or would you need the mandarin and that's kind of how i judged and i didn't include a glossary in the book actually because um The purpose like I didn't want my book to necessarily become like an educational tool like I don't want readers to have to like see the like italicized term or like the Mandarin term and then like flip and be like okay what is this word like learn the word because I don't think my book would even do a good job of educating you like with a glossary like I think you really do need to see or even hear Things like Google them. Like if you see an instrument and you're curious about it, then Google it, and then you can listen to it, which is something you can't do with a glossary. So yeah, that's sort of like my all over the place answer. No, I I like something that
0: I love. Literally everything you said. I think it's so, and I think that you know, uh, people. I think what people need to understand is that because we are still still introducing parts of our culture to the Western world and to the English speaking world. Cause we're writing in English and publishing in America that we do have to make these really hard decisions about what is enough and what is not enough. And at the end of the day, like, you know, there's always the wish, like I'm all of me is enough. Like all of my culture is enough, but like that's not actually the reality. Um, and it's, and you know, it's, it's definitely um, you know a responsibility of a lot of um, a lot of authors of color um, bringing their culture into their stories. And I think that you obviously put a lot of thought into it. I think it's amazing. I would love to think that 10 years, down the line when you're obviously still writing and amazing author that maybe you can make different creative decisions because there will have been a standard and a a foundation created and obviously you're one of the authors who's helping to create that so thank you (laughs) Uh,
2: thanks kat yeah i mean, yeah i wish i wish for the same and i feel like yeah i think like in terms of like how like introduced chinese has been into like the english language like Yeah, I feel like it hasn't really been, I'm not sure if you feel the same way about like Korean really, but I feel like there are some other Asian languages that maybe have entered the vernacular more. And I feel like realizing that Chinese hasn't gone there yet, it is something that I have to think about when I'm making those decisions. Like I can't just say like a word and have people understand like, oh, that's the visual image that goes with it. No, yeah.
0: I think that makes a lot of sense. And also, you know, honestly, because Asian languages don't use the Romanized alphabet, that's also an issue. Um, and I think that Mandarin, um, has a different, um, struggle that Korean doesn't have because it's tonal and Koreans not. And so at least if you can like, just learn the basic syllables or whatever, um, in Korean, then you're pretty, sh- it's pretty straightforward. And so I couldn't even imagine like what the struggle would be, um, to be like, someone is reading it as best they can, but they're still just not getting it.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> A different level. Yeah. Yeah, and, like, the romanization of Mandarin was, like, created in the 1960s. So, it like, mm-hmm. the the actual, it's called the pinging, it's, like, the italicized stuff that you see in my book. Like, that was a recent creation in response okay. to, like, westernization. So, yeah, like, yeah, it's definitely a struggle. <laughs> well, I think that you deal with it very gracefully. <laughs> Thank you, Kat. <laughs> All right, so,
1: um, Claireville sorry i I feel like we're just like having our own conversation no 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 it's really cool i i actually really i i know nothing about this but i love listening to everything that goes behind it and like you have to have so much care and i feel like do things that you know white writers don't really need to think about like a lot of the times so it's an appreciated conversation um i do want to get to the um Fast forward a little bit to um, the release date and a little bit about what you went through with um, with your book, uh, Joan, if you would like to share that with 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 the listeners. I almost said readers.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, Yeah. So we'll fast forward through all the revisions and stuff and exciting things like the cover reveal and blah, 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 like promotion. Okay, And to like um, like I would say maybe. Yeah. March march like this past month um yeah like the thing is there are a lot of things as an author that you you don't like think you have to think about like when i was writing books i definitely didn't think i had to think about like where my books like shipping like were they going from like the printers to like the warehouse to like the retailer um and like the retailers warehouses like those were not things i ever thought i had to think about but honestly, there are a lot of things that you don't, you think you don't have to think about in publishing. Like, I don't think I really thought about promotion really when I was writing this book until like, I actually had to do it. So I think a lot of this has been a learning process. And for me, yeah, like just realizing that yes, like my primary job is to write the story and my primary job is to just write. But at the same time, like the reason I'm writing is so that people like readers can get the book. And part of readers getting the book is making sure that the book is in fact like you know like releasing on time so that's it's like worries I don't necessarily want to have to have but I like will accept them because it's part of my bigger mission which is to share my story and so yeah like earlier on in March I'm not sure if you guys know about this but like there have been some like paper issues in the industry and Mm -hmm. like a just like a bunch of like production side problems and so I'm was calling my local Barnes and Noble um, asking them if they could stock more of the books so that I could come in to sign. And they were like, oh, like, we haven't received the book yet. Like, it's on the warehouses. And honestly, like, most books, they don't get into the warehouses until, like, very close to release. But I just, like, I think something that's important as an author is just to be proactive and just, like, ask your publisher if you're ever concerned about something. So I asked my publisher and was like, can we, like, see where the books are, like, in the process? And that's when I learned that um, they were delayed at the printer. Um, And at that point, we kind of had... To make a decision pretty quickly um because release was coming up about like should we stick with the original release date and like risk books not like circulating in time or should we push and so we made a decision to push the release date but even then obviously like so much is like out of our control like my publisher um because it is a smaller publisher they work with um another they work with a distributor outside of them like bigger publishers like Macmillan per se, they have like their own Macmillan distributors, but a lot of smaller publishers, they work with like outside distributors. So there's a lot of people and a lot of like places, and there's a lot that's out of your control. So even with the delay, um, we still ended up running not into printer issues this time, but like shipping issues, which is why, um, the book, like, even though it was out of the printer, it then then had to be like transported to the dis- distributor's warehouse and then to like the individual like amazon warehouses and then amazon has a lot of warehouses within its system and so it had to be distributed within that na- network before actually like making its way out to readers so there's that whole like like there's this whole like machine in place that <laughs> your book has to go through to come out on time yeah yeah, I don't think anybody thinks about any of those things. <laughs> you
1: just sort of, like, assume, like, the book will be there. But yeah. it's a very real thing that yeah. has to happen. There's so much that goes behind your book from when you write it to it becoming, like, a physical thing. So
2: that yeah, is very... Yeah, I think, yeah, like, I think in um, an ideal world, like, as an author, you you shouldn't have to think about these things but again like there are a lot of things that you take for granted really that I feel like I've just learned to like not do that like for example I think when I was writing this book I was thinking like oh like once I get published it's going to be in like every Barnes and Noble and I think a lot of published authors will actually tell you like not to take that for granted because you learn that like it's it's hard getting your book into like brick and mortar stores and it's even harder to get your book like in a like a to have a good placement in a store so that like people pick it up and that's something that like coming from a smaller publisher like I kind of had to come to terms with that it would be very hard getting my book to have like the same amount of coverage in like brick and mortar stores which is why like again like having like the online retailers work was like such a big thing to me and why it was kind of like, oh no, like when amazon.com like wasn't working or BNN.com wasn't working on release day, it was a bit harrying, but like, yeah, in the end, I'm glad it all worked out. Yeah, me too. Me too.
1: (laughs) I'm, I'm, I'm very, like, I will say, obviously I spend a lot of time on social media and I think there's a big difference between a book that has like a giant marketing push and, um, a book that you can tell readers and the community is like really really excited about and like your book people are obsessed with your book like people (laughs) talk about your book so much there's such a huge push there's people with the book title in their like handle I was just gonna say that like like I
0: like because of your book there are so many people who I do not know what their real name is yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, their name is just your book title which i super appreciate but sometimes i'm like have i already talked to this descendant
2: of the crane person
1: or is it right. another the crane person? Which, which one is it which one <laughs> is-
2: i mean honestly i run into the same problem sometimes because some of them also have the book title um as their profile picture <laughs> the all right like which yeah because like yeah i mean some of them are um i i did form a street team as part of my like own marketing efforts and like a huge part of the word of mouth has been thanks to them and i will tell you like um some of the like descendant of the crane like twitter peeps they probably are um, for my street team and yeah i'm so grateful uh for all their help especially as like out of my control struggles have popped up they've always been like super supportive and like on my side
1: I love that so much. Um, Shout out to street teams and to bloggers and to readers who really support authors um, in this way. That's like very encouraging because sometimes you're not getting that like validation or the help and having people who really care about your book and having that community push is a huge deal. Um, it really is I'm really happy that your your book is out there for people to buy and read this story that's gone on this amazing journey and now <laughs> let's talk about embarrassing things um, <laughs> so everyone who's on the podcast shares either um, something they'd wish they'd known before they started or their most embarrassing uh, publishing related story so it's up to you what you want to share
2: uh, I feel like Oh, my God, I feel like I've already shared, like, a lot of embarrassing things. I mean, like, yeah, like, the first query, the first, yeah, Um, I'm I'm trying to think. I I might have mentally blocked out a lot of the embarrassing things. Yeah, something I wish I'd known was that that my relationship to writing would change um, as I went through this process. And it's actually something that I'm still... Struggling to figure out like, what does rain mean to me now that I'm like published and people can read my book? Because like in the beginning, like I said, like I started out in fan fiction, right? And in fan fiction, I mean something you'll know you'll notice if you go into a fan fiction community is that people like rarely like leave negative reviews. They because like you're all it's like you're already like you already bonded through the fandom, and so when you're reading a work, it's purely to like share that love with another person. And like, that's the reason why I got into writing. Like why I started was because I wanted to write for my readers. Like I went to write for the fans and I went to find the people who love the same things as me. But then obviously as you, um, like once you like get published and stuff, um, that changes because, not everyone's going to automatically love your book, right? And, like, you actually learn to, like, not read reviews. Like, I know some people completely don't read reviews. I still try to, like, every now and then, I'll, like, go into my Goodreads and I'll click, like, the five-star filter and I'll read those because, like, that was the reason why I got into writing. It was to find, like, people who read and loved my work because it felt like a connection. Like, I had a connection with a stranger who loved the same things as me. But, like, the thing is... Honestly, it's been kind of hard um, just because I think the thing is like I tell myself I don't think about the negative reviews, but the byproduct byproduct of that is that I also kind of don't really weigh the positive reviews as much. It's like I can't put blinders on one side. It's like overall I've sort of felt myself kind of distanced from the readers because it's like I, it's their space now, like the book is out and I can't really be in that space anymore in the same way that maybe I thought I would be when I first started this journey. So I'm sort of at a point right now where I'm like, all right, like I have to figure out like how to write for myself now, while also hopefully like, um, keeping that magical part of connecting with people who love your work. And yeah, that's something that I didn't think I thought I would have to think about, but I'm now thinking about, yeah. That
1: makes a lot of sense. And it's something I didn't think about in the same way, you know what I mean? Like I sort of always um, see people talking about how, you know, the reviews are for readers and I completely agree. But like, yeah, sometimes if if you're staying away from the bad, then you can miss out on the, the good stuff also. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think it's just like in general like if even if you like only are weighing the good stuff, if you weigh them too much, then you can't help but think like okay, like how much, how much bad stuff is there? Like it's like yeah. in general it's just you I've found that I can't really weigh reviews like as much as I used to, which is kind of sad because like before like again, like reading like readers reactions to like fan fiction was like such a bright spot of fan fiction. But yeah, it's something that is, I think, I think everyone has to figure out like why they love writing and why they keep writing at every different part of their journey. That's so smart. And also, also I think
0: it actually really is something for writers to think about because, because we're the ones who created this story, uh, what we consider negative is skewed. Um, like a reviewer, or reader will think three stars means I liked it, but a writer will definitely think that three stars is a negative. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, but I also think, um, cause I, there's a lot of conversations going on on Twitter about, um, taking, um, taking, uh, oh, gosh, what's the word? Constructive criticism. Gosh. on my brain constructive <laughs> criticism. Well, is important, um, just because the landscape of publishing is changing. Um, and if you just think that you're always perfect, then you'll never grow. So
1: that's also important.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that I'm makes not, a lot of sense. I'm not yeah.
1: always perfect is what you're trying to say to me right now. Um, no, you are of course the <laughs> exception. <laughs> just kidding. Um, Joan, thank you so much for being on the show. You're amazing. Yeah. You're I'm more. so excited for your book. Um, can you tell everyone where they can follow you on the internet?
2: Yeah, I am on uh, Twitter as uh, Joan He Writes, and that's also my uh, Instagram handle, Joan He Writes, and it's also my website, joanhewrites.com. Yeah. That's perfect. I
1: love the branding. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Perfect. Um, thanks again, Joan. I'm glad the, hopefully, the, the book drama with the, Stocking is done (laughs) and everyone's gonna get their their books and read it and leave you more reviews and continue to support your um your writing so so thanks again
2: yeah thank you thank you so much thank you so much for having me guys of
1: course so honored